0: Good morning, good to see you this morning, uh, great to be with you this week, I've, I've just enjoyed my time so much already, you're a wonderful group, just such a great mix of people from uh, different vocations, stages of life, that type of thing. I do want to um, invite you to come up and see us in Vancouver uh, at Regent, It's as you know if you've ever been to Vancouver, it's an amazing, beautiful place. Um, But Regent's a very unique place. It's very much built around community. Um, I'm going to actually get Carl to to share a little bit about his experience of going up for classes there. And um, it's just a unique experience. We we do place a lot of emphasis on uh, building community through food. So that kind of is a good connection with North Carolina, right? Um, I ate at the Mediterranean place for lunch yesterday. And you folks know how to do food here, too, which is great. But uh, there's something about being around the table and just talking. Um, We actually have a food course on the theology of food, which is very cool. Uh, So there are some some great things for you to come and be involved in, and I look forward to sharing a little bit more about those as we go on. I want us to start this morning with um, actually a worship video. This is from Andrew Peterson. I don't know if you know Andrew's work, but... um, this is uh, a song called, He is Worthy. And it's, it's approaching um, the exaltation of Christ from a bit different perspective from Hebrews. If You know Revelation, Revelation four and five uh, kind of sets a frame for the book of Revelation by taking you to the heavenly throne room. Uh, chapter four is you see God seated on the throne. And in chapter five, then you see the lamb in the center of attention there in the, in the throne room and it's very powerful. So this song is kind of based on Revelation 5 um, but I want us to start here. It's just a time for us all to kind of move our hearts in that direction and then we'll get right back into what we want to do today to kind of walk on through this section of, of Hebrews. So let's, uh, let's take a look at this and notice the videography. The videography will move and actually build in a certain way so watch watch for that it's- This is the show. Okay.
1: It's an announcement. Andrew Peterson will be coming to Durham Church of the Good Shepherd December 6th. Okay. Uh, to do Behold the Lamb. the Lamb.
0: Yes. Uh, if you've never heard um, Behold the Lamb, Behold the Lamb is a Christmas concert, really, where uh, Andrew travels with friends uh, who are musicians from Nashville. And it's just absolutely wonderful. How many of you have, have actually seen Behold the Lamb? Okay. Yeah, boy, you need to you need to go check that out. Uh, it's uh, it's really really great. So I would encourage you to do that. Andrew's part of a kind of a network of these uh, young musicians and artists uh, in the Nashville area, and they're doing doing really good things. So, all right, let's have a word of prayer together to to start our morning. Father, we thank you that we can step right into your presence because of what our Lord High Priest has done on our behalf so decisively in dealing with our sins. And Father, we thank you for space in life to come to events like this, to just open up our minds and our hearts to understanding your word better. And Lord, I pray that as today we walk through these uh, parts of Hebrews in chapter 2 Uh, on into the end of 4, beginning of chapter 5. I pray that you would help us to understand. I pray that you would help me to think clearly, to speak clearly. And, Lord, I pray that uh, we would be able to bring this down to how relevant it is for where we really live in the world today. Um, I pray that uh, you would bless our time together, that you would encourage us, uh, build us up in the faith, and Lord, I pray that um, this would all just be to your glory, Lord, that our attention would be drawn uh, more resolutely to you, and we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, yesterday we were in the beginning of the book of Hebrews, and the author, as we said yesterday, starts with this very exalted picture of Christ. Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father right from the beginning, right there is the climax of the introduction of the book. You have Jesus seated at the right hand, and then the author goes into what we talked about yesterday with the katina of text, or the string of pearls. Uh, it was called uh, by the rabbis, where these Old Testament texts are stitched together to make a point. And We saw that Jesus is superior to the angels uh, because of several things. One, the uniqueness of his relationship to the Father. Um, God never said to an angel, You are my son, today I have begotten you. So you have this this unique relationship with the Father. You have the inferior uh, relationship uh, that the angels have in terms of just their ministers, they're sent out to do God's stuff uh, in the world, and they actually bow down and worship the Son, let all the angels of God worship him. And then, in this kind of move to a climactic note in that string of pearls, He talks about uh, Jesus being the Lord who reigns over the universe. His is the scepter of righteousness. The Lord has anointed him with the oil of gladness above his companions. Uh, This exalted language. And then he's not only the one who uh, laid the foundations of the earth. You, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundations of the earth. And the heavens are the work of your hands. Uh, They are temporal, they are uh, transitory, they're passing away, but you remain, your years will not come to an end. So you have this, this amazing, exalted picture of Jesus being the Lord of creation and the one who at the end of the age will wrap it all up. He will be the one who will pack up all of the created order like a garment and, and put it away. And then the author crescendos with Psalm 1. Again, uh, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Now, that's going to transition us. That statement is actually going to transition us into chapter 2, verses 5 through 9, where the author is going to continue his kind of unpacking of Christology. But before he does that, he moves to exhortation in chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. So that's where we want to begin this morning we want to talk just a little bit about how the author plays off of the Christology in the first uh, chapter to move to his initial exhortation. And we kind of get a window, a little glimpse into the community that he's addressing and the challenge, the problem that some of them are facing uh, at this moment in chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. So just so we can all kind of wake up together, uh, if you would, Mm -hmm. let's read this out loud together, and then I'm going to kind of walk us through some things about this passage, uh, and, and then help us think through some implications of it. Just read it together. We must, we must pay careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away. For since the message
2: spoken through angels was binding, and every violation and disobedience to see just punishment, how shall we escape if we ignore so great a salvation? This salvation, which was first announced by the Lord, was confirmed to
0: us by those who heard him. God also testified to it by signs, wonders, and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. All right, let's talk about the purpose and the process Of this passage. What is the author trying to accomplish, and then how does he get at it? Well, obviously, the purpose is to give the first of the book's strong warnings. There are five passages kind of evenly spread throughout the book where the author warns the audience and says, look, the stakes are high here. They're very high. This is not just kind of uh, saying, well, there are options in life, and one option is about as good as another. No, the author is going to warn them say this is uh, really a big deal that you need to pay, pay attention to. Um, so the key issue that Hebrews seems to be addressing, again, is that uh, persecution is on the rise, a lot of pressure. Christianity probably, uh, in Rome at this time, was not seen as kind of a legal religion. And therefore, uh, if, if the historian's accounts are, are correct, uh, Nero eventually is going to even start pointing to the Christians as kind of scapegoats. Uh, one of the stories is that that Nero actually uh, set part of Rome on fire, and the accusations were that he was clearing the deck for his palace, which did get built on a part that was burned off, if I'm remembering correctly. Uh, but he he turns attentions to the Christians and says, uh, this kind of weird group that practices cannibalism. Think about you know eating the misunderstanding that language, Um, these these strange people who don't, uh, they're atheists, they don't believe in the gods, Uh, they're the ones who are are really causing the problems. And so when the persecution gets full force under Nero, he will actually be crucifying Christians in his gardens, uh, putting pitch all over their bodies, lighting their bodies to to, uh, kind of give human torches uh, to light up his gardens at night, uh, as well as throwing people to the lion's that. So really, really intense persecution is coming. This is right before all that really uh, starts moving. People have not started being martyred yet, but the pressure is starting to be applied. And therefore, there are some people who are in that context and they're saying, you know, this is just too hard. This is, this is not what I thought it was going to be. And because of the cultural pressure that's being applied, some of them, Kind of on their way out the door, evidently there were already people who had left the church and, and turned their back and walked away. So, what the author uh, is wanting to do here is to warn them, and he does that by uh, giving these warnings. But he'll, on the flip side of that, he'll give promises and show them hope and, and all of that. But he's going to lay a foundation for why you should hang in there, even in the midst of the most difficult persecutions that you face. The process that he uses here in these four verses is actually a rabbinic technique that was very common called an argument from lesser to greater. If you've studied anything about ancient rhetoric generally in the Greco-Roman world, this is an a fortiori argument to the greater. Uh, But this was a common rabbinic technique. And basically the principle of uh, lesser to greater said that if something's true in a less important situation, then it's certainly true in a more important situation with greater implications. Right, let me say that one more time. So an argument from lesser to greater is if something's true in a less important situation, it's certainly true in a more important situation and it has greater implications, okay? So let me, let me just kind of show you how this sets is set up by 1, five through 14 and how it works in this passage, and then we'll go through and kind of unpack the passage itself, okay? So here's the argument from lesser to greater. Remember yesterday I said that with a string of pearls that we have here in the first chapter of the string of Old Testament text, when you get to the end of that, the, the uh, impact it should be, everybody in the room shaking their head and going, wow, yes, okay, Jesus is so much greater than the angel. I mean, no comparison here. Then what the author does in 2, 1 through 4 is he says, in effect, this. Do you remember what happened to people in the Old Covenant era who rejected the covenant, who turned away from the Word of God? Do you remember what happened in their situation? Bad news. If You walked away, turned away from the covenant, rejected the covenant. Of harshest imaginable punishment. In fact, death under the Old Covenant was, the, was kind of the, the implication there. That's the lesser situation in this case. Um, there are implications, in other words, for turning your back on God, turning your back on the covenant that God offers, the salvation that God offers. How much greater punishment is deserved by those who turn away from the word of salvation delivered through the superior son? You see the argument to the greater? It says, look, if... if You turned away from the word delivered to angels. If that was bad, how much worse is it that God in the person of his son would come and bring this amazing word of salvation, and then people turn away from that? Do you you understand the the basic argument that the author is giving here? That's the argument to the greater. Now, anytime uh, you know, in in our time and in our era, uh, you start – Talking about finding those passages in Scripture which talk about the judgment of God and the, the, you know this kind of thing. I don't know how it is in in North Carolina at this moment, but in my very post post uh, Christian culture uh, in Vancouver, these words kind of grate on the ears. You know, this is this is harsh. You think, oh, God's just a God of love, right? Uh, and it is true. God is a God of love. This is this is the essence of who God is. As God is God. But love always, always has implications, you know, in terms of relationship and and that kind of thing. And it may grate against our ears because of where we are in our cultural moment, where we live in the world. There are many people, vast majority of the world would understand the concept of of implications and judgment and that kind of thing. Uh, So we need to kind of remember that we are in a cultural moment as well. We are not just the epitome in the West and the way that we think about things, right? We have our own cultural moment, and we see things a certain way, but understand that what Hebrews is saying is that if God comes to us as people, if God has paid such a, such a terrible price for our salvation to draw us into relationship with himself, there are implications of walking away from that. That's the basic point. There are implications of that. Um All right, so let's kind of turn and walk our way through parts of the passage together. And I'm going to kind of move on past this since we uh, already talked about that. So let's kind of talk our way through the parts of the passage here. Let me see if I can unpack a few things for us here uh, as we get started. So the author starts with this idea of uh, drifting away, that um, we need to be careful that we don't drift away. Um, he says, for this reason, it is necessary that we pay more careful attention to the things that we've heard, lest we drift away from it. The language of drifting here, this term, could be used of a variety of things. If you uh, had, you were eating, and you had an olive go down the wrong way. You know, uh, my wife is from a German background, and uh, they they spoke of being verschluckt of you you've gotten verschluckt <laughs> had something kind of go down the the wrong pipe. If if someone was, uh, uh, you know, out washing dishes or something and their ring slipped off the finger, that was this word of kind of something that slides slides away. But this was also a nautical image. So uh, remember that in the ancient world, ships were not driven by, you know, motors. They were driven by the wind. And so one of the skills of a captain uh, of a ship would be to get a ship moving into dock and to be able to read the elements, read the wind the right way so that you cut the sails just at the right time. Because if you kept the sails up, you get driven, driven into the dock, which would be disastrous. But you cut the sails at the right time so that then the ship just comes in and glides right into uh, where it needed to be in port. This word is an image, though, of a of, of ship where the sails are cut too early. Mm
3: -hmm.
0: And what happens is, as the ship is coming into where it's supposed to be, it starts getting blown off course, getting blown away from really where it is supposed to be. So he says, we need to be careful to pay really close attention to what we've heard, to the message of the gospel of salvation, so that we do not drift away from it. And then he goes into the argument from lesser to greater for if uh, this word that was spoken through angels was binding, the Greek word there is babaios, it's it's a word that was a legal term in the ancient world where if you entered into a legal agreement with someone, it was a binding agreement. And he's saying that when you look at the Old Testament text, and, and one thing I hope you pick up this week, is the author of Hebrews is profoundly oriented to Uh, In fact, you know, people raise the question about, does he have the temple in mind when you get later in the book, and he's talking about the high priest going in? No, he's very oriented to the scriptures, so he's thinking about the tabernacle that you have described in the Old Testament. He's not really dealing with the temple, okay? Um, But here he says that if you go back and you look and you read the scriptures carefully, when someone turned away from the words of God, rejected the words of God, there were binding, you know, regulations on what happened with that. And that's what he means here, that these regulations were binding and every transgression of those instructions uh, received a just an appropriate payback, appropriate recompense is uh, the idea here. And then he says, how shall we escape, this is the greater, if we neglect so great a salvation? Now notice how he, he uh, describes the salvation. And I want us to take a minute to think about this and about the implications for us because I think it's a really, really important point. When he describes the salvation here, he is um, talking about it historically. Historically. He says that it was first received as delivered from the Lord himself. And then it was confirmed to us by those who heard. It was confirmed. That's the verbal form of that earlier word. It's, again, legal terminology. It was confirmed to us by those who heard. So, in other words, Jesus came and presented the word of salvation. He was the first one to come and present the word of salvation. Now, the word of salvation is... You know, what many of us grew up with, this idea that God came and died, Christ came and died for our sins so that we might be put back in a relationship with God. But the word of salvation, if you go back to the Gospels and you see Jesus' initial preaching, it is that the kingdom has come in him. The kingdom of God has been uh, brought to us, has been renewed, and at the heart of of this idea of salvation is that Jesus Christ not only died, but he has been exalted to the right hand of the Father as king of the universe. That's at the heart of the good news. If Jesus was not resurrected and exalted to the right hand, he was just another Jewish guy who died on a cross. So, foundationally, the word of salvation is that God is up to something in transforming the universe, and it centers on Jesus, who was raised from the dead and is now the Lord and the King of the universe. Right? And that's why he was raised for our justification, Paul says in Romans. Our salvation, in terms of forgiveness for sins and everything, is, built, is just based on who he is, his identity, and what he has done. It's not. It's not less than that he has died for our sins and we have a relationship with him, but it's much more than that. It's a, there's a bigger picture going on here. So it was confirmed by the eyewitnesses. So eyewitness accounts of the first disciples and apostles who saw Jesus as raised from the dead, went throughout the Mediterranean world, and proclaimed this. Notice that in the book of Acts, over and over again, when they're preaching and they're teaching, they keep pointing – to the historical reality of the resurrection of Jesus. Appealing to that is kind of the foundation of what they're doing. It's different from scientific verification. It's not the way history is verified, but it's, it's a historical type of verification where they're appealing to the thatness of it. And then notice that who take, notice who takes the witness stand last in this series. It is God himself. God also bearing witness with them. Soon martoreo is the word. With, uh, soon it's with uh, martoreo is, is the idea of bearing witness to something. So God Himself bearing witness by uh, signs and wonders, various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit. Now, what does that mean? It means that one of the things that happened as the Christian movement moved out into the world was that God Himself poured out signs and wonders and miracles, and the purpose of those was for the verification of the message. It validated the message. Now, again, this sounds somewhat strange to us because of our cultural uh, place in history and our our time. Um, We live in post-enlightenment world. Uh, We're used, as Westerners, even if we are believers, we're used to thinking of things in very kind of cause and effect, natural Horses and all that, which is very appropriate. That's the way the world works, right? But the idea of miracles has always been there in the Christian movement as something where God intervenes in the world that He has made. And at times He does that to validate and verify uh, what He has, what what He is actually up to and what He is doing. You see this in the book of Acts, Um, you see it at various places in the history of the church. And you see it in parts of the world today. I've taught, uh, the first time I taught in China, I was in Qingdao, which is uh, kind of up uh, on kind of northeast coast across from Korea, uh, famous for their beer there in uh, Qingdao and seafood. And uh, they um, actually uh, had, we had a whole bunch of believers come from all over China, about 20 different provinces of China. and. The believers I was with that week, we normally have two or three uh, classes going at the same time. The believers I was with was a group who were a little bit older. They were from Western China. Some of those believers had traveled by train for 70 hours to get to us. And uh, so I was there with them. And just, it was like stepping into the book of Acts. So it was like stepping into the book of Acts. And interacting with those folks and them just naturally talking about the things that were going on in their ministries. They're not trying to impress. In fact, a couple of them, uh, one of the the matriarchs of this group, she's planted churches in a bunch of different provinces of China. She's gone to be with the Lord now, but uh, when she was in her 20s, she was in prison, you know, back with the Cultural Revolution and all of that. She uh, actually spent time in prison, and she was preaching the gospel. People were coming to Christ. Uh, people were being healed. She was casting demons out of people. All of that sounds like, whoa, to us, you know. But, but this was happening. I had to drag it out of her to get me to, to get her to tell me any of this. And she said while she was there, the warden of the prison came to her and said, we don't understand what you're doing, but we're going to take you over to this other prison so you can do this stuff over there too. Uh, because it was just changing. It was transforming the the context of the, of the prison. You know, and I've talked to some of those believers. Uh, in fact, uh, Dorcha, this, this lady, had been paralyzed from the waist down, confined to a wheelchair, and three of the sisters from the West came to her, laid hands on her, and she, she got up and walked and was walking until the day she died. So, you know, you have these kind of things that, for us, just seem astounding. For them, at this point, in Western China especially, it's just kind of normal what God is doing, and I asked them, I said, you know, it seems like you don't have much of this stuff going on along the eastern seaboard, uh, which they used to have, you know, miracles happened a lot in in various parts of China, and they said, well, our belief is that what happens is God pours out the miraculous when the gospel is getting established somewhere, and then after the gospel really gets established, God bears witness to the truth of the gospel in the lives of his people. And so their idea was that miraculous tends to kind of withdraw. Uh, the same type of thing is happening, happening in Israel, and I won't, I won't tell you a long story about it, but one of the Arab guys that I know there, amazing story. I, I'll, I'll tell you his story at some point maybe. But Carlos uh, came to Christ. He was in prison. He'd come out of a drug culture and all this kind of stuff, and God just transformed him and um, and he comes from a church that doesn't believe that miracles still happen today. He's, he comes from a cessationist church. But as he's gone and just shared the gospel with people, including Jews in Israel, uh, God at times just does miraculous stuff. Um, he was sharing with a, uh, a Jewish man in a mall in the man's family. And the man was crippled, and, and he actually was healed right there in public. And, and this kind of thing is happening in the world even today. I tell you, if you want to take a look at this from a scholarly standpoint, Craig Keener is a friend of mine. He's one of the best uh, New Testament scholars in the world on backgrounds, both Greco-Roman and Jewish backgrounds, Craig Keener. But he's, he was writing uh, his commentary on the book of Acts, which is four volumes. Each volume is over 1,000 pages. And he couldn't find a really good book on miracles. You can pick that up and uh, take a look at it. Uh, but he couldn't find a great book on miracles, so he stopped and wrote a two-volume <laughs> work on miracles. Uh, the first, uh, first volume is kind of miracles in the ancient world. Second volume is miracles in the modern world. Uh, and he uh, is doing this kind of from an academic standpoint, but it's, it's extremely well done. He's married to an African gal, uh, and her sister Again, I know this just sounds crazy to us in a sense, but his sister died from a snake bite. Uh, she was being carried across a mountain. Uh, his wife's sister died from a snake bite she was being carried across a mountain uh, to a village where there was a doctor. When they got there, the doctor wasn't there. He was off somewhere else, and she had died on the way there, and the pastor of the church there came and laid hands on her, and she was raised from the dead. Now, now folks... That is absolutely absurd unless there is a God who can break into the world. And he doesn't do this stuff on demand. God sovereignly chooses when and where he entered sex with the world. But what Hebrews is saying is that we should pay attention to the word of salvation carefully because the God of the universe has broken in to the world and born witness to himself. And he is doing amazing things in advancing his cause in the world. And so the author gives this warning to to hang in there, hang in there, and perspective on who Jesus is, what Jesus has accomplished on our behalf. And this is is part of the foundation that the author is going to lay. Now, uh, when we think about the implications of this kind of stuff, I do want you to begin thinking about the importance of history for the Christian movement. Importance of history. Importance of history for the Christian movement. Uh, It's really, really a significant foundation stone that God has broken into real space and time and interacted with real people. That's a really, really important point. Uh, what happened in biblical studies after the Enlightenment was that the scriptures often were approached from the standpoint of atomization, pulling things apart, trying to get at the real meaning by you know, getting its source and stuff. And there's good study of the Bible that came out of, of some of that methodology and that type of thing. But it was often with the presupposition that faith has nothing to do with history and the pulling apart of faith and history. And uh, I think it's disastrous when we move to that point because the whole point is, in some ways, of the early church is that no God has interfaced and is transforming history, and that's very, a very, very important concept that is really at the foundation of what's going on in the New Testament. Okay. All right. Let's uh, push the pause button there just for a second before we move on and see how the author then makes a transition. With chapter 2, verses 5 through 9. Um, let's see if you have any questions about that before we take a brief look at how 2, 5 through 9 is transitional and really affects the move from Jesus being exalted to Jesus being incarnated. Um, but do you have questions? Yeah, Lauren? I understand uh,
3: as a, a, if you're a drifter and a disobedient, there
1: are consequences. But does it mean that you lose your salvation? That seems to be implied in the the first few verses of chapter
0: two. Okay, it's a good question. Next question. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, just but, kidding. Of course, this is this is one of the big questions that um, <laughs> that Hebrews deals with, and I'm gonna. Maybe even at lunch we can talk a little bit more about this if you're interested because you have passages like the warning passage in 6, 4 through 8. Uh, It's impossible to renew to repentance those who have fallen away. What does that mean? Uh, I'll give you my short answer of where I'm coming from. Um, We probably have folks coming from a spectrum of perspectives here. You have kind of a traditional reform perspective that says, no, perseverance of the saints is just a a foundation stone. That means that if you really are saved, you you will remain saved to the end of the age. You have an Armenian perspective that would say, no, you can actually walk away from it, turn your back on salvation. Uh, my my perspective is I, I would uh, be reform ish in my understanding, but it's it's once the, the uh, mantra when I was growing up was once saved, always saved. And I would say once saved, always saved, if saved. <laughs> and, and that a person can come and be baptized and participate in the church and look like a Christian, smell like a Christian, act like a Christian, and then if they can walk away from it and deny Christ and say you know, he's just a Jewish guy who died on a cross has nothing to do with me. They're, that person is manifesting something about themselves that, that is terrifying. And in the New Testament, salvation has a past, a present, and a future. It's a package deal. In fact, Hebrews 9.28 says that Christ will bring salvation with him when he comes. It has a past, a present, and a future. J.I. Packer would say that in the past, we were saved from the penalty of sin. In the present, we are being saved from the power of sin. In the future, we will be saved from the presence of sin. So it's a package deal. So what I would say is if we get to the end, and you are a person who has turned your back, walked away, said, this has nothing to do with me, you don't have the package. (laughs) And however you read that, uh, if you read it, you know, as someone who says (laughs) that if you are really saved, you will persevere to the end, or if you read it as more of an Arminian perspective that says you walked away from the result is the same, Right? That person is in deep yogurt. I mean, they're bad, bad, bad situation. I don't mean to be trite with that. It's, it's a horrible situation when someone has walked away. So my perspective is that uh, I do believe that the person really knows the Lord, has been transformed by the Lord. Hebrews is going to use language that says, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified, which is his language for cleansed from sin. He has done it for all time. It, al- it already reaches into the future that all my sins are decisively forgiven in the new covenant. Already. But the reality is, as we go along, if someone manifests that they don't know Christ by turning their back on all this and walking away, that's the way I—that's the language I would use if they're manifesting that they don't really have that transformative relationship. Even though they may, you, you know, as somebody who looked like a Christian and, and was involved in the Christian community, I think that's a lot of what's going on in chapter 6, 4 through 8, is they, they look like everybody else in the room, but then they manifest something that is terrifying. So that's, that's an inadequate answer, but it's, uh, but it's a beginning. It's a beginning. Yes, doctor?
1: But these exhortations sound as if you have something to decide.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely right. Yeah. That you have something to decide. Is that yes. a, absolutely. Some people have interpreted inter- in, uh, the warnings like in 6, 4 through 8 as kind of rhetorical, you know, like they're just kind of putting something out there. If you could lose your salvation, it would be a really bad thing. I don't think so. I think, I think the author believes the stakes are as high as they could get here. Yeah, it's, it's a serious, serious situation that the author is trying to address. Yeah. Can, okay,
2: so... Oh,
0: Yeah, let me, let me say two things about that um, that I think, you know, may, may begin to kind of frame it and put it in, in perspective. And we, we can talk about this more. Um, first of all, the world is a hard place. I mean, it's, it's just a hard, dangerous place. And the wonderful thing is the Bible is brutally honest about that. Uh, you have the lament psalms, which I'm guessing probably most of us have not heard a lament in the while in our churches, and that's a tradition that we've lost in the church that we need to regain, where we actually lament with people who are who have cancer, who are, going, who are going through divorce, who are going through financial disaster, who have lost a child. You know those kind of things. There's a rich tradition scripturally that is deeply honest about the the hard, hard, hard. Things in life. In fact, it's a it's part of the equation of of kind of a Christian realism that says you know this is the real world. It's not the happy, happy Jesus makes everything perfect world. Uh, it's the Bible's brutally honest about how difficult the world really is. And so that idea of being honest with God, disappointment with God. Uh, Philip Yancey had a book you know uh, where he's probing some of those kind of kind of issues. I think that is biblical to grapple deeply with our with our emotions, our disappointment, and bring those to God. What happens in the Lament Psalms is you have this, this deep honesty where the author is saying, God, I'm super disappointed in the way these, these things are going. It feels like you're gone. You've left me. All of this kind of thing. And then it comes to a turning and says, but then I came into the house of the Lord and I got perspective. We're actually going to talk about that in the next uh, unit 2, 10 through 18. But then gets perspective, and it turns to praise, not turning away from the pain, but but in the pain, turning to praise of God, embracing God in the midst of that pain. So that's that's the first thing. The second thing is I there are things that I value about the conversionist culture that I came out of. So hear hear me on this. Um, I think that there is something that is significant in you know Billy Graham type of mm-hmm. approach to things and other. You know, I came from a Baptist tradition and all this kind of thing. There was a a thing where you were taught to be open to God and to expect that God was going to do something significant in your life. And, And at times to come and make decisions where you say, I will decide to be God's person in the world, I will follow Him, you know, that kind of approach to life. I think there's a value in that. The flip side of the coin is that sometimes that can be manipulative. Sometimes it can be emotion-driven. And if it's not put in the broader context of Christian discipleship and growth in the faith and growth in understanding of theology and, and grounding in the scriptures, then it becomes something where people are just kind of living from experience to experience. And that doesn't go very far in the world because you have counter experiences and they start trying to read the negative experiences. You know, well, has God left me? Is God punishing me? You know, that, that kind of thing. So what I would say for those of us in the room who've come from kind of conversionist backgrounds, uh, you know, that has a rich element where God has worked in the world through people like Billy Graham. I mean, it's, it's wonderful. But it needs to be held in balance by learning from the broader traditions of the church, being people who are grounded. If you're in that kind of context, what are you doing to ground people in Christian discipleship and thinking well about the world and having a profoundly biblical perspective that is a balanced perspective, I think, on these things, and sometimes just brutally, gut wrenchingly honest about the hard things and difficult things in life. Okay, so that's a beginning there. All right, one more I'll question, add, then we're going to move on. add
2: something, which is that I think we need to discuss maybe, and you can sort of, I this is a question, but if God doesn't deliver the miracle you're praying for, yeah. it's not a Yes, you absolutely. You can sincerely pray for a miracle and then not be healed. Yeah. And then we just have to release to God the results. Absolutely and not right. And say if God doesn't let the person come out of a wheelchair and she falls on her face. Yes. That that's not absolutely right. Have the faith to make that miracle
0: Absolutely right. Yeah. God is sovereign in His choices and the way that, what he, who he decides to heal, who he doesn't, that kind of thing, that is left up to God. And you even see that in the New Testament. You know, Paul himself, talking about Epaphroditus, he says, well, you know, God had mercy on me uh, by allowing Epaphroditus to live. Paul didn't assume that it's just automatic. He always gets what he asks for, that kind of thing. Um, I, I don't think I'll be able to remember the whole thing, but I actually wrote a poem about this recently. Based on Jeremiah nine twenty three and twenty four, and it starts out, um, um, "Oh Lord, I love you, but I dare not boast that I understand you, O one I love the most." And and I use the example in the poem um, of two two guys that we prayed for who were godly, godly, godly young men who were being used greatly by the Lord who had cancer, and they died in the face of just a a torrential rain of prayer on their behalf. And I think what we do at that point is we we come back around and we say, uh, you know, nevertheless, um, I will delight in what you delight in, Lord, and that is your faithful love, your Hesit in Hebrew, Your faithful love, I will trust and, and hold on to your faithful love. Because death is not the worst thing that can happen to somebody feels like it, but it's not the worst thing that can happen. Uh, and if you have people who die well in the Lord, that could actually, you know, be used by God. And But it's a hard thing. But but you're right. At the end of the day, we have to come and bow before the Lord. So, all right. We, we need to move on just for the sake of our time. So let me, uh, what I want to do is kind of get through this uh, transition that we have here in 2, 5 through 9 and just kind of give you a big picture on this. We're going to, kind of move a little bit faster and then give an overview of what happens with the incarnation in 2.10 through 18. So uh, before we take a break, let's take a look at two five through 9. Uh, I'd rather kind of go slowly and talk through things, if that's okay, uh, and we'll just kind of get done what we get done, okay? Is that all right with you as we go through? All right, so 2, five through 9, let's talk uh, about this. All right, I said that the Christology of Hebrews develops um, kind of step-by-step step. here. We started with the exaltation of Jesus being greater than the angels, and then you have the warning that we just looked at. What the author is now going to do is he's going to move back to this quotation of Psalm 8. And in this quotation, um, notice that you have elements of exaltation and incarnation. What is man that you're mindful of him, so man you thought him. You have made him for a little while lower have crowned him with glory and honor and put all things under his feet. He's going to read that as exaltation. Now, uh, Psalm 8, we're going to uh, talk about the fact that this passage is uh, making this transition, but the author is using this psalm. Psalm 8 is actually a reflection on the creation of human beings. It's a beautiful reflection on the nature of what it means to be human, and our place as human in the world. So this psalm initially was a, uh, the psalmist's reflection on this, uh, this exalted position that we have as human beings. It's interesting, when you look at the use of this psalm in the ancient world, um, in broader Jewish literature of the Second <coughs> Temple period, for instance, It often comes across negatively because um, it's put on the lips of angels, for instance, saying, God, these human beings you created, what were you thinking when you did that, you know, that kind of idea? Uh, So it comes across as kind of negative. But you have this this exalted position that we have as human beings. And what the author is going to do is he's going to pick up on this. Uh, think about Adam and Eve being created as the monarchs of the of the world, right, to to be the stewards, to be the image of God uh, interfacing with the created order, created world. There's some implications of that what we were created to, to be and do. Uh, so one of the questions that has come out of this passage, excuse me, uh, let's read it, and then we're going to talk about that question, one of the questions that's come out of it. Let's read it first. Let me read it to you. For he has not subjected to angels the world to come that we're talking about. But one who somewhere testified, what is man that you remember him or the son of man that you care for him? You have made him lower than the angels for a short time. You crowned him with glory and honor and subjected everything under his feet. Okay, so one of the questions that comes up about this, is this anthropological? At this point when Hebrews is using it, is it primarily still talking about us as human beings, and then the author transitions to talk about Jesus. Or is it Christological? Is it Christological? Does does the author read it as Christological right from the beginning? So which is it? Is it anthropological or is it Christological? And my answer is yes. (laughs) It's both. It's both. Jesus is being read here as the ultimate Fill what Adam failed in, in terms of the position of the universe. So what, what has happened is Christ has taken up the reality of this passage into himself and now reigns over the created order the way that human beings were intended to, in a sense. But he's done it as the exalted son of God at the right hand of God. Okay. So the author is reading this as Christological from the beginning, and you can see that in the passage, uh, right from the beginning. So let me uh, let me let me read just the beginning of the passage with you, and, and make a few comments there. I don't have my reflection on my my next slide. I forgot to set, put that turn that on uh, at the beginning today, so I'm going a little bit blind. Let me just see what the next slide is here. Okay. Well, we'll come back to that in just a second. Uh, look at the. Uh, verse 5 again here. He says, Not to angels has he submitted the coming world concerning which we are speaking. What's he talking about there? What does he he mean when he says um, not to angels that he submitted the coming world? Well, What this is doing is it's actually reaching back and picking up uh, the end of chapter 1. Remember how the end of chapter 1 crescendoed on Psalm one ten one. the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Remember that? So that until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet is anticipating the end of the age when Christ as Lord of the universe will deal with all of the bad stuff that goes on in the world. He's going to wrap things up. He's going to decisively deal with all the enemies. Death. It's not going to be allowed to walk around anymore. All those who oppose the things of God, the the tremendous evil that has done the world, will be shut down at that point. So what the author is saying here is, it's not to the angelic beings that the coming world is going to be submitted. It's to Christ. So right here in the introductory formula that we have, or in the uh, introduction that we have right here, he's already pointing to Christ. For someone has somewhere said what is man, and he goes into the quotation of the psalm uh, here in the passage. So what is man, and he's just using these elements of the passage to tap into both this exaltation and incarnation, the idea that he's been uh, below the angels for a little while. That term could be understood either temporally as in a little while, or by degree, a little bit lower, Than the angels. But his point is that human beings, in terms of just status in the universe, we are of this earth. The angelic beings are around the throne of God. So we're lower than the angels as humans, just in terms of our position and status in the universe, in that sense. Okay? So Christ was made one of us for a time, the author is going to say, and then um, he was exalted to the right hand uh, because of death. So look at the way that he kind of kind of plays this out. Let me, uh, let me go back to the passage. and verse 8 he says, for in subjecting everything to him, this is his commentary on the psalm, for in subjecting everything to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. As it is, we do not yet see everything subjected to him, but we do see Jesus made lower than the angels for a short time So by the grace of God, or God's grace, he might taste death for everyone, crowned with glory and honor because of his suffering and death. Now, what's the author doing here? Uh, Basically, he is using another rabbinic technique. And let me explain the rabbinic technique to you. The rabbinic technique is called dispelling confusion. And what the rabbis would do is they would take a passage, and another passage that had similar language and the, when these two passages seem to contradict each other in some way, the rabbi then would unpack and explain how it's really not a contradiction. They're really working together. Okay, so it's dispelling confusion. This seems to be kind of confusing when you look at these two passages together. <coughs> and therefore, uh, he's dispelling that by kind of unpacking and explaining it. Well, what's the author doing here with dispelling confusion? Well, notice that. In Psalm one ten one and Psalm 8, the passage on deck now, you have common language. Psalm one ten one is, until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Psalm 8, you subjected everything under his feet, which he's reading Messianic Christologically. There are other places like 1 Corinthians 15 where these two passages are also brought together. So what's confusing about that? What is the potential confusion here? Carl? Has it already happened or is it going to happen in the future? Yeah, so the subjection of all things <laughs> under the feet of who's, whoever's being talked about here, is it something that is a done deal? It's already happened? Or is it something that is going to happen in the future at the end of the age? And again, the author, his answer is yes. It's both and. So what he says is that. We do not yet see all things. He said, first of all, in subjecting all things to him, nothing is independent. You could translate that that term. Nothing is left independent of him. All things have indeed been put under his feet. In other words, Jesus really is Lord of the universe. He really is Lord of the universe. He's been seated on the throne of the universe. So that's the first point. But Psalm One Ten One means we don't yet see that as a reality. We still see the enemies of Christ walking the earth, but we see him. It's really, really important. We don't yet see all of the things of this world that are bad and difficult already put under the feet of Christ. We don't see the reality yet. But we see him. We see him in his suffering. You think God cares about suffering? Look at the cross. But we also see him in his exaltation to the right hand. It's kind of a double look where we see Christ in his suffering that gives us perseverance in the midst of our suffering. We see how it's going to turn out because we see him exalted to the right hand and sitting, sitting on the throne of the universe. Already, we see it's a both-and kind of reality. So the author is saying that it's a now and not yet. The reality has already been placed in motion by the exaltation of Christ. It will be consummated at the end of the age. Sometimes people have used the analogy of Napoleon. You know, Napoleon met his Waterloo and then continued to march across Europe on his ar- with his army. He was he was <laughs> defeated. It was done. But you didn't have the consummation of that defeat until time later, right? So you have this idea that it's a now reality and not yet. So here's the question. If that's the case, why doesn't God go ahead and deal with evil? Why doesn't God go ahead and deal with with the horrible, horrible things that walk the earth that are enemies of God? think about human trafficking in the world, you think about the horrible sexual violation of children, all of these kinds of things, why does God go ahead and deal with that? And and the answer is twofold. He has on the cross. He's already begun dealing with it on the cross so that people would be transformed through the gospel and would make a difference in, in the world and would deal with the Secondly, he will shut it down at the end. He's going to shut evil down at some point. We now live in a time between the cross and the coming of Christ, which is a time of tension. Because we live under the lordship of Christ, and yet we live in a very evil, sometimes horribly difficult world. But listen, folks, because it's between the time of the cross and the coming, Christ is still building his church. Evil people, like you and me, have the opportunity to respond to the very good news that God loves us and wants a relationship with us. And what God is doing during this era, this age, is he is building his church, building his bride as people respond to the gospel, and evil people get pulled out of that kingdom of darkness, Paul calls it, and brought into the kingdom of light through the good news of Jesus Christ. So we live, we necessarily live in a time Still happen to good people, and yet the time is coming when God will decisively transform the heavens and the earth, and uh, deal deal with evil decisively. That gives me hope. You know, you look at situations like I mentioned earlier with the with the uh, men who who died, and um, you you realize this is a part of living in a fallen world, right? Death is still stalking the earth, but from a Christian framework, we can make sense of this. It, it, you know, both the the wonderful, glorious, beautiful aspects of the world and the tragic, difficult, dark, horrible aspects of the world are understandable from within a Christian framework, I think, if we understand that worldview correctly. Okay. All right, let's take a break for 15 minutes. We're gonna come back and uh, I'll give you a chance to ask questions. a little bit as we get toward the end of the morning, and uh, we'll just kind of keep going here, okay? All right, thank you. Let's take a 15-minute break. All right, let's go ahead and get started back. Um, I want us to, in this latter part of the morning, we're going to take a look, uh, kind of try to give a bit of an overview of what's going on in 2, 10 through 18, so that we can then move to, uh, really, the heart of the book starts with four fourteen and following. Uh, The author is kind of spending a lot of time setting up what he's going to do in the heart of the Christology, really moving from 414 all the way through 1025, and so I want to keep us moving in that direction, and we'll see how far we can get. So let's uh, kind of talk a bit about chapter 2, verses 10 through 18, and then we'll uh, kind of work our way through it and talk about some of the implications of it here. Now, where we are in this uh, part of the book is in this third step of the Christology here in the first two chapters. So we saw Jesus is exalted. The passage we just looked at in 2:5 through 9 is transitional, moving from exaltation to incarnation. And now, what we move to in 2:10 through 18 is a focus on uh, the fact that Christ came to be among us. His solidarity with us is a very, very important point. So you have this idea of Christ coming down to to be one of us, to be one of us. Again, tying it back, you think about images that you have in other places in the New Testament, like uh, the tabernacle. And in the, I talked yesterday about the fact that you have the, the Shekinah is, is the way that the Jews after the uh, early church Talked about the, the glory of God coming down on you know the, the tent in the wilderness that kind of idea um, and so John one says that the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us that you have this this language it's actually the uh, Greek term um, that you have relation to Greek terms used of the tabernacle in the in the Old Testament so. You um, you have this idea of God coming down to us and being among us and walking among us. Uh, think of passages like Second Corinthians chapter six verse sixteen, that um, you know He said, "I will walk among them. I will be in them and walk among them." Uh, and that's where Paul is talking about us being the temple of God, so and what God was doing uh, in the world. So this movement that we have here. Uh, talks about God coming in the person of Christ and walking among us, living among us, putting on flesh like us. A uh, very, very basic, uh, important concept that we have here. Um, and let's take a look at the passage together. So the first part of it here reads like this. For it was fitting for him for whom and through whom all things exist, bringing many sons to glory to make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For indeed, he who makes holy and those who are being made holy all have the same origin. And so he's not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brothers in the midst of the assembly. I will praise you. Again, he says, I will be confident And again, here I am and the children God has given me. Now, let me um, just kind of say a word or two about this part of the passage and talk us through some things here uh, before we move on and, and look at the latter part of the passage. So he begins with this idea that it was fitting, it was fitting for him, through whom, or because of whom, are all things, and through whom are all things to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. Uh, You know, in in bringing many, we could translate it sons and daughters here. The the language is the language of heirs. Uh, It's the reason why sonship is kind of emphasized here. It's it's playing off of the terminology of Jesus as son, uh, but it's speaking about all of us in the room, men and women together who are part of the new covenant, who are followers of Christ. So uh, how is it fitting? What do we mean by fitting? Um, back when we lived in Tennessee, we had a, um, a shop out in our backyard where I kept tools and things like that. And I kind of inherited my dad's messy gene when it came to the organization of shops. My dad could organize his shop, and in two weeks, the whole thing would be just dissolved into disarray. And I got that gene. So, you know, when I was... Going out to find a, a nut and a bolt at times I, I would have a box and there would be nuts and bolts. And so I was trying to, I would be trying to find uh, a nut and a bolt that fit, right? That, that worked together. So what does the author mean when he says that it was fitting? Somehow it was appropriate for God to perfect Jesus in the way that he did through suffering. In bringing us back into relationship with himself, getting us on this path where we're moving back into relationship with God, in what way was it fitting? I think it it was fitting in a couple of ways. It was fitting in that you had this profound relational move where God came after us, if you will, Uh, where God is is reestablishing the relationship by coming to us face to face. But what that involved was Christ taking on humanity and suffering in the process of that, of becoming vulnerable to suffering and even death, all right? So you have this idea of, of the suffering being an aspect of the love of God coming after us. It's appropriate for him to come after <coughs> us and to kind of pay a price to bring us back into the relationship with himself. it's appropriate. It was fitting also in the sense of the decisive price, sacrifice for sin being made in order to deal with our problem, which was a sin problem. So you have the bringing together of love and sacrifice in dealing with our problem, transforming us and bringing us back into this face-to-face relationship with God. So he says it was fitting that God would do it this way. And then he says for um, those who are being sanctified and the ones sanctifying are all from one. Now, the, the language here in the Greek text could either be a reference to our shared humanity. Uh, if, it's, if it's read as neuter, it could be understood as kind of our shared humanity. We're all from a, the same experience, a similar experience. You could also read the phrase as we are all from God. In other words, God is initiating this whole process of Jesus being sent and us being drawn back to himself And there's a lot of family language here, all from one God, one Father. There's a lot of family language here. I don't think it matters that much which interpretation you take, uh, but what's underscored in the passage is our common experience that there's a solidarity between Jesus and us because he's come to walk our path, to put on flesh, to be one of us, to be completely human, even as he was completely divine. The way that Miller Erickson talks about the incarnation is uh, that what Jesus did is he added complete humanity to his complete deity. He added that to his experience. And it's a mind-blowing kind of thought that what Jesus did is He took up our humanity into himself. And therefore, in a sense, God took up our humanity into the Godhead in the person of Jesus. You have a distinction um, there uh, between the natures of Christ, divine and human. We won't go into how the church has kind of tried to sort that out. But the idea that I want you to get is there's a solidarity here between us uh, and Christ. So he has perfected. Uh, us by coming after us. Yes, Technical
1: sir? question. Is the hymn in verse 10 the Father or the Son? And in verse 11, it seems to be the Son.
0: Yeah, I think the hymn in verse 10 is speaking about God the Father because he is the one who is perfecting. All right. And the right. hymn and the he in verse 11 is Verse 11. Son. He who makes holy and those who are being made holy. The ones sanctifying and the ones being sanctified all have the same origin. Yes, you're right, that, that is now speaking about the son. Very good, yeah, there is a distinction there. Um, now, when he moves to verses 12 and 13, what he's doing is he's quoting scripture. Tomorrow night in the lecture, I'm gonna be talking about various ways the New Testament authors appropriate uh, these Old Testament texts. But here, the first one <clears throat> is Psalm 22. If you um, are familiar with that psalm at all, <clears throat> excuse me, you know that this was a messianic psalm. <clears throat> this was a psalm that um, in verse 1 of that psalm, excuse me, <clears throat> in verse 1 of Psalm 22, we have the words, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So you have... Uh, Various elements here um, in that broader psalm, if you go read it, which are pointing to Messiah, um, and he quotes this psalm here. But the reason why he quotes this specific bit of the psalm, I will proclaim your name to my brothers in the midst of the assembly. I will praise you, is the emphasis on being in the midst. Notice that language of being in the midst. So it's the idea that God came in the person of his son to be someone who would walk with us, who would share our experience, who would look us in the face as human beings and would know from the inside what it was like to be human. Right? So the author wants to drive home this point that this is really significant, really, really important, uh, that, that there was a solidarity between Christ <laughs> and the rest of us. The second passage that he deals with is Isaiah 8, which also is in the context uh, a messianic passage of the Old Testament. One of the things that's happening in New Testament studies, I think more and more, is there's a profound kind of underlaying of Isaiah throughout the New Testament. Isaiah was really important for the early church in various ways, and this is one of the passages that was important. So you have um, Messianic overtones in Isaiah 8, just three verses earlier in Isaiah 8, prior to 8, 17 and 18, which is our passage that we're dealing with here. Uh, Verse 14 refers to a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. Remember that passage? So speaking about the Messiah as a a stone of stumbling Um, and the New Testament authors pick up on that as speaking of Messiah. So here he says, here I am, and the children God has given me, this again points to him being among people, and now the emphasis is on family relationship. So it's, it's this amazing idea that not only has Christ come after us to win us back, to bring us back in relation with God, but the relationship he brings us back into is family relationship. We are adopted as sons and daughters of God. We're brought into the family. Um, and you have this, this beautiful imagery that we're not just kind of brought in as slaves to the household or something like that. We're brought in as heirs. We're brought in as inheritors in Christ. We share in Christ's inheritance because we are, we are one with him. We are identified with him. We are incorporated into him. We could use that language We are one with him. This is an ancient idea of what is called corporate solidarity. It means that you have kind of Christ as the representative and we're all kind of bound together in him as one big family, if you will. Now, the implication of this, he goes on to focus on the death of Christ itself. So look at verse 14 and following. And the death of Christ is going to move us to topic of high priesthood, which is (coughs) foreshadowing here at the end of chapter 2, foreshadowing what he's going to do in the middle of the book when he focuses on high priesthood. So notice what he says in 14 following. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he likewise shared in their humanity, so that through death, he could destroy the one who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and set free those who were held in slavery All their lives by their fear of death. For surely his concern is not for angels, but he is concerned for Abraham's descendants. I would translate that a little bit differently than the NET does at this point. Uh, That term could could be he doesn't assume angels. He doesn't take on the form of, doesn't take on the existence of, he, he actually takes on the existence of people, human beings who are Abraham's descendants, heirs of his covenant. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers and sisters in every respect so that he could become a merciful and faithful high priest in the things relating to God to make atonement for the sins of the people. For since he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are tempted. So he moves into this this, um, imagery of Christ has come to become one of us, to walk in our shoes, have our experience as a human being so that he could then take us out of that experience, uh, help us with our temptations that we are facing, and uh, he understands. He understands so that he can help us uh, in real life, in the struggles that we have, and even dealing with the fear of death because of the way he has decisively dealt with death. All right, let me just say a couple words about that, and then we'll talk about some implications of this uh, passage. All right, the idea of uh, fear of death was a big deal in the ancient world as as well as, you know, in in our world. So you had authors like Euripides and Cicero and Seneca, Epictetus and others, who talked about the the power of the fear of death as it kind of assaulted people. Epictetus said, uh, and where can I go to escape death? Show me the country, show me the people to whom I may go upon whom death does not come Show me a magic charm against it. I have none. What do you wish me to do? I cannot avoid death. <laughs> and then uh, Lucretius, a, a contemporary of Cicero, wrote a, a long poem on the nature of things. And uh, he, he has an Epicurean perspective. And the Epicureans taught that all of reality is material. And so you don't have to worry about the afterlife. You're just going to go away and you know, n- cease to exist, that kind of idea. So he he sought to free people from the fear of death by proclaiming that people cease to exist after death and just shouldn't worry about it. Okay, so that was his his idea. Um, Philo, a Jewish writer of the period, echoes um, a different worldview than uh, Lucretius, something more in line uh, with what Hebrews is talking about. And he says, nothing is so calculated to enslave the mind as fearing death through the desire to live. Um, And what the author of Hebrews is saying is that Christ, what he has accomplished in dying for us, going through death, coming out on the other side in resurrection, he actually brings about um, release from being enslaved to this paralyzing idea of the fear of death. And he's done it by becoming one of us and going through our experience as human beings. Um, I recently read, uh, I've I've been reading George Herbert. Uh, Do you know George Herbert's poetry? George Herbert, um, great um, uh, Anglican uh, poet of a couple hundred years ago. And uh, he says this about faith. This is just one little part of his uh, poem on faith. He says, faith makes me anything or all that I believe is in the sacred story, and where sin placeth me in Adam's fall, faith sets me higher in his glory. If I go lower in the book, what can be lower than the common manger? Faith puts me there with him who sweetly took our flesh and frailty, death and danger. I love that. So he says that, you know, you see this picture in Scripture where we have this exalted position because of our relationship with Christ, and yet that exalted position reached down, reaches down into the depths of human ex- existence as low as you can get. You know, Christ being born in a manger and then dying, dying on a Roman cross. Uh, it's the whole span of human experience um, that Christ has taken on Himself. So what are the what are the implications of this? Well, he's going to go on and he's going to talk about the high priesthood of Christ. We're not going to, to kind of unpack this very much at this point, but uh, he says that he had to be made like his his brothers and sisters in every respect so that he could become a merciful and faithful high priest. What he's alluding to there is in the law it said that high priests were taken from among the people taken from among the people. He's actually going to say this overtly in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 1. He'll say, every high priest is taken from among humans and appointed in relation to God. Okay, So uh, he had to become one of us to be taken from among us and appointed high priest. One of the uh, requirements of a high priest was he had to be from among the people so he could sympathize with them in their struggles. And we're going to see how the author kind of unpacks that um, in just a bit. So let's talk a little bit about the implications of this. Some of you have been reading along with the, with the commentary. So what were some things that I kind of drew out as application here in, um, in this part of the passage? When we talk, let's focus for a minute on the fear of death because that's something we can all identify with. That's a common element that we have um, in our world. Um, so when we think about this passage and we think about the, the fear of death, what, what are some, some implications of this? I'm actually going to kind of roll my stuff ahead a little bit. Uh, so what about application? How do we think about it? Everybody remember some of what I talked about? Why does Christ dying for us, how does it address the concern that we have. What are some of the concerns and fears that we have when it comes to death, Carl? What would you say? I
1: remember one of the things you talked about was that um, we are afraid of losing our family.
0: Yeah.
1: And those that love us and that we love so dearly. And yeah. We can think of our parents that way. And how much they. Yeah.
0: separation and the loss that that death death is a is an ending. My dad died back in March. He, he lived a long life. He was <coughs> 90 years of age. Good man. And um, but one of the things that I said I actually delivered the you know the uh, address at the funeral and um, had a number of, of relatives there who are just secular folk, you know, that they really don't aren't people of belief. And I was saying that, you know, you, you've got to deal with this is an ending of some of some happen, something. You know you've got to grapple with the fact that that this is this is decisive. However you think about it, it's something that is decisive. And for those uh, who are coming from more of a, a standpoint like Lucretius, you know this idea of just don't worry about it because you're just going to pass away. Well, that's sad to me because, that means that that you no longer, however else you read it, you no longer will be able to experience relationship. You'll no longer be able to experience beauty and the, the wonder of the world and, and that kind of thing. So that, that issue of loss that we have in the face of death, of separation, there's a Christian hope that this is not the end. This is just the beginning, in a sense. Just the beginning. What else? What would be another fear that we have? Loss of control. Yeah, the loss of control. I, I think as I get older, that's one of the things that is scariest about, you know, growing older um, and ultimately culminating in death. You know, that, that we're just not in control at that point, in a sense. And so um, I think one of the things I'd say in the commentary is control's an illusion <laughs> anyway. You know, so we, we only have an illusion of control in this life. Um, but... If we come and we are bowed at the feet of Christ, we are bowed at the feet of the one who is in control, ultimately. Anything else? What other implications? Yes. Aren't
1: most Christians more afraid of losing their minds than their lives? Mm -hmm. Uh, I think probably a lot of people are. Yeah. Yeah,
0: there was an old preacher named Vance Habner. I don't know if any of you remember his name, but he had a sermon called Take Me Home Before Dark. Mm -hmm. And that's what he was talking about, you know. Um, And... um, I, I read a story recently, I'm trying to remember where, where I saw this. Um, I think it was in some research I was doing on a topic I'm speaking in a few weeks, but this guy was talking about his experiences of going to um, uh, a home for, for elderly people who were dealing with dementia and that kind of thing. And, um, and there was one woman who went out and she was lying face down on the floor in the hall and just crying out to God, crying out to God. And every day she would come and she would just lie, lie there in the middle of the floor. And uh, and her words were something to the effect of, I don't want to be forgotten. You know, people were having to step over her there in the hall. but And I don't want to forget God. And so she was just saying over and over and over again, you know, crying out to God. Because she didn't want to forget God. And the, the guy who was counseling her said, well, you know, I just want to assure you that even if you forget him, he's not going to forget you, you know, which is a, a beautiful thought. But you're right. We, we fear that. We fear that. Um, and, and again, we have Christian hope that in the renewal of all things, the transformation of all things, we are uh, going to actually experience the renewal and, and really to feel free and complete in a way that we never have been able to in this fallen world which is, we can't imagine what that would be like. Uh, the rabbis, if I remember correctly, believe that we would have resurrection bodies that were kind of where we were when we were 33 years of age. <laughs> uh, or something like that. Uh, I was, I, I wonder if I'll have hair, you know, in the, in the new heavens and the new earth, but I don't care. Uh, I think it's easier this way. But, uh, but the reality is that we long, we know that things are broken. We know that things are, Not what they should be. And uh, we long for renewal and completeness. And the resurrection is described, the resurrection of Jesus is described as the first fruits. Now that's an Old Testament sacrificial image of bringing in the first fruits to God. But it's also, it's playing off of an image. Uh, We used to have blueberries in our backyard uh, in Tennessee. And I would go out every June and pick the first ripe blueberry, and I wish I could tell you I would take it to my wife for her to eat. Uh, but, But it's just like when that first fruit ripens and heralds the coming harvest. Christ's resurrection is the first fruit of transformation of the whole heavens and the earth. God is up to something. There's a program going on here where God will transform the heavens and the earth, and part of that will be dealing decisively with death. So we have this, uh, we have this uh, fear of separation, fear of incompleteness, and failure, um, fear of the loss of mastery and all that kind of thing. And if you think about it, the resurrection of Christ, the death and the resurrection of Christ answers every one of those fears. Uh, still, the Bible's realistic about the fear of death. It's not a problem that we struggle some with that. But it is answered in the fact that there is one who has gone before us who can deal with it, who has dealt with it, and it's come out on the other side of it. You have this uh, aspect then of um, the fear of death, and let me just kind of, for the sake of time, I'm just going to, to um, share um, a couple things in conclusion. Woody Allen had this great quote, it's not that I'm afraid to die, I just don't want to be there when it happens. You know, so we have that, that kind of idea. Um, but then we talked already about the Loss of things. I love this reading from Chronicles of Narnia. Uh, this is at the very end of the whole series, and this is, if you remember, those of you who have read the Chronicles of Narnia, this is when the children who have been coming in and out of Narnia are coming to Aslan in this final story where he shut Narnia down, and they're in the real Narnia and Aslan's country, and uh, and they basically the children are begging and saying, you know, Don't, are you going to send us back again? And uh, he says, there was a real railway accident, uh, said Aslan. who's was the Christ figure in the stories. Your father and mother and all of you, as you used to call it in the Shadowlands, are dead. The term is over. <laughs> the holidays have begun. The dream is ended. This is morning. And as he spoke, he no longer looked to them like a lion. But the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful. I cannot write them, and for us, this is the end of all the stories, and we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after, but for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read and which goes on forever and ever, in which every chapter is better Beautiful, beautiful idea. God is writing a great story on the world. He's writing a great story on the world. And what he's doing is he's trying to draw us into that story and see Jesus at the center of that story and the transformation that Christ has set in motion in this world by coming and dying for us and being resurrected and then building his church through the ages. But the ultimate goal is not that you and I would be like ghosts floating around on clouds for eternity. That's not the Christian hope. The great Christian hope is that this is all about the transformation of the heavens and the earth. The resurrection is the first signal, if you will, of God reclaiming all of reality, transforming the heavens and the earth so that we will walk in that new heavens and earth in our resurrected bodies. Okay. All right. Let's uh, kind of push the pause button there just for a second before we move on to our uh, final movement for the morning, which uh, we're going to take a look at four fourteen through sixteen and its role in the book, and then chapter five verses one through ten. But let me just pause and see if you have any um, any questions that you'd like to raise about that section that we went through much too quickly. Do you have any questions that you would like to ask or something uh, feedback that you would like to give? Anybody?
3: This might be a rabbit trail, but you mentioned that the high priest had to be from among the people. Yep. How does
0: Melchizedek fit into that? Because he's a little odd. Yeah, we are going to get to Melchizedek. Um, what he's doing when he says that, that the high priest had to be from among the people, is he's talking about general um, kind of principles or guidelines for high priesthood that he's going to do in passage we're going to look at in just a minute. Uh, when he gets to Melchizedek in chapter 7, which is the main main part where he deals with Melchizedek, his whole point is that, well, this is a different kind of priesthood. So you have some overlap between the nature of high priesthood according to the old, uh, the law uh, and what the new covenant priesthood of Christ would be. There's going to be overlap in one of points of overlap is taken from among the people and identification, he can help us and sympathize with us but the difference is, is how you get to be a high priest <coughs> that's going to be the main difference and Melchizedek's going to for the author, set that up <laughs> and say, Melchizedek wasn't a priest because who his daddy was it's not by lineage which is the big point of how you got to be a priest and the law it has to do with something else and so that's, that's going to be uh, what he's going to do when he brings in Melchizedek. Yeah? Um, when you read this and you think, like, a priest needs to be from among the people, or, um, you know, in the passage before, they talked about Jesus and what he does and it had to do with fittingness, that it was fitting that yeah. this would happen. When you read the story of Jesus and, you know, what's going on in Hebrews, how much of this is dictated by, like, a there's a formula that Jesus fits um, that needs to happen? Um, yeah. And how much of this is just kind of movement of
1: fittingness and beauty and what seems appropriate
0: yeah Um, I'm not sure that I'm completely understanding let me let me (coughs) take a stab at it and you you help me shape it if if we uh, we need to Um, I think I think that it's both and that it, it is something that the fittingness is something that is beautiful it is beautiful and I think that when we're reading the the breadth of the story of of what's going on, how the early Christians were reading the Old Testament in light of the Christ event, they're seeing it as something that is astoundingly beautiful, right? Uh, But it is fitting also in the sense that there are patterns that were established in the Old Covenant era that are fulfilled in the New Covenant era. And, And therefore, it's not just starting over. It's not doing something different. Uh, it, it is breaking in and doing something different, but it's doing something very much in line with the grand story that is already there being written on the world. So it's a both end. I think the thing that we need to, to kind of lean into a bit more as Christians is the beauty side of this. Um, Richard Hayes, you know, uh, great professor at Duke, is, is a guy I have great respect for, and he's written. A uh, couple books on echoes of the Old Testament and the New Testament. I'll actually deal with some of those echoes tomorrow night. But I, I saw Richard at a professional meeting last year, and I told him, I said, you know, when I read your echoes of Scripture in the Gospels, it was just a worship experience for me. Yeah. Because to see how they, the Gospel writers just wove all of these echoes and illusions from rich Old Testament reservoir into what they were doing uh, is just just powerfully beautiful, and what it does is it brings you to the worship of Christ because so many of those echoes are pointing to passages in the Old Testament that are about God himself. And uh, Rich that thrilled Richard. He, he just, just thought that was great, you know, so he, he was excited about that. Uh, yes, John?
1: Uh, I'm wondering about the oral tradition yeah, of the Jews, you know, leading up to when our Lord came, and whether they built upon you know, the passages in the Old Testament or they steered away from it, you know, how that works.
0: Yeah. Getting at, getting at, like, Jewish oral tradition you're speaking of specifically, Second Temple Period, getting at that is tough because by its nature it's oral. It's not written down yet. So when you get to a little bit later on the, Mish- the Mishnah, about 200 AD, and then the b- development of the Talmuds and, and that kind of thing, uh, are, you then what you have is, is a beginning of writing down a lot of these traditions. And there have been people that, that have sorted out the earlier strands of that to try to get at what is earlier and what is later. But it's, it's pretty hard to, to kind of sort out. But what we do know is a lot of the rabbinic material um, was based on recounting the stories of the Old Testament or doing kind of teaching based around interpretation. Some of the rules of interpretation I've talked about, like, you know, um, the argument to the greater, the verbal analogy, those were used by the rabbis in discussing uh, passages of scripture. So we don't know a a lot about, we know oral tradition was important, but we know that they're kind of reading the oral tradition, interfacing with the texts of scripture themselves. So there was kind of a of both and, you know, working together of that. In the early church, think about the fact that uh, you don't have the gospels written until at least probably the late 50s onward. Um, You have the gospels written down because what was happening in the church is these stories were widely recounted and told. Um, You had what was called the living voice uh, in the patristic era, and that was these eyewitness testimonies who were telling the stories of Jesus and the history of Jesus. Great book in that regard uh, is Richard bockham's book on Jesus and the eyewitnesses. It's a, a very good book on the eyewitness testimony of the early church. So that's something that you might take a look at there because it's starting to get into kind of oral traditions and how they, you know, how they develop. Um, but then Paul's writings, you know, start being done very early. I think the earliest New Testament writings were perhaps mid-40s, you know, just a little bit more than a decade after the the death and resurrection of Jesus. So the book of James, I think it's possible that 1 Peter is that early. Um, And, you know, so you have a very, very early uh, kind of tradition starting in terms of writing things down. Yes, sir?
1: Yeah, the the question I get most asked most by non-Christians, so I can't answer. Okay, the echoes, well, you're picking echoes that make sense. How about the echoes of this cruel guy kill the women and children, and so forth and how, how those echoes relate to Christ. I can't answer that. Yeah,
0: you mean how, specifically how does the violence that we see in the Old Testament oh, at yeah,
4: points... Yeah, God is a mean,
1: ugly, vindictive yeah. God in the Old Testament and uh, you're looking at Christ and what He's yeah. mentioned here. How do you answer that question? I've never been able to, I've never heard a good explanation.
0: In three minutes. Um... <laughs> <laughs> Um, let me just say that John, John Walton um, was at Regent recently, and he actually dealt with that question in, uh, in terms of the commands going into the, pro- into the Promised Land, and uh, he actually says that the language um, is not actually talking about going in and wiping people out and committing genocide and that kind of thing. So if you want to look for that on Regent's website, that would be a place you could start. There are books like "Who's Afraid of the Old Testament God," is a title of, of one book, but um, it's it's not an easy um, not an easy answer. Yes.
2: But actually, I would challenge. Usually, when people say that to me, I would challenge them and say, "Actually, read the Bible." Yeah, that's right. Because if you actually read the Bible, the God of the Old Testament yeah. is so gracious to women and children. Right. And when you read, when you actually read it. It's amazing how merciful and compassionate he is to women specifically, and especially to foreigners.
0: Yep, so what I was Mm going to say is when you actually deal with the Old Testament (laughs) itself, it's not that you have a God of judgment and wrath and a mean God in the Old Testament and a loving, kind God in the New Testament. You actually have a loving God from the very beginning. If you read it in its historical context, Mm -hmm. the progressiveness of a lot of those passages in the Old Testament dealing with women or people who are slaves or whatever Mm -hmm. Uh, it's very, For that era, for that time in the ancient Near East, uh, even you go back to something like, like Genesis 1, uh, the exaltation of women where men and women are in the image of God, you'd have that nowhere else in the ancient Near East. You don't have that anywhere else. It is a product of its time. It was a violent time in the world. War was a normal aspect for all peoples of that time. Um, so what I would do is... Uh, I think that's a great suggestion. Actually, get them to read the story. When you move to the New Testament, it's there's continuity uh, that we still have the God who is a God of love and covenant and faithfulness of the Old Testament is now expressing that in the person of Jesus uh, Christ. So you have it. It's a. It's what I would say is it, in some ways it's a misunderstanding that God is just kind of a, a, a capricious you know, horrible God in the Old Testament that then turns into a Christian when he gets to the New Testament. You know, that kind of (laughs) idea. So... I was just going to say, since they point to Jesus whose love and make that a contradiction, Jesus on the cross is both the perfect division of the love of God and the justice of God. And the justice of God, yeah. Yeah. You look at the book of Revelation, you do have wrath and judgment in the book of Revelation. So you have that there in the New Testament as well. There are some people, uh, Paul Copeland, uh, Palm Beach Atlantic has a book uh, in which he deals, I think that might be, I'm trying to remember the, which title is, is which person, but he has a title on, on this where he is dealing with, um, you know, how do we deal with you know, this question of what seems like these very violent uh, passages that we have in the Old Testament. Remember too, that we are dealing with these questions after 2000 years of Judeo-Christian history. <laughs> and ethics. You think the way, you and I think the way we do because of the Judeo-Christian ethic of love and being focused on the other person. That's absolutely from a Judeo-Christian view of the world. So it's an inheritance of Christianity why people would even struggle with that question. Because it's the only, only worldview which says, I will make my decisions in relation to you for your good, not because of honor or shame for me and my family, but for your good, for the sake of you and your situation, that comes entirely from a Judeo-Christian heritage. Mm. It does not come from other worldviews. Um, there's actually a secular uh, psychologist, I think, uh, in the United States who, who did this thought experiment. He's not a Christian, he's not a religious person, but he actually did a thought experiment with his students where he said, uh, it's middle of the night, old lady is walking down the street with a purse full of, of uh, jewels and money, and uh, you know, the question is, do you mug her, no, and nobody will find out. It's not even illegal where you are. Would you mug her and take that for yourself? And he said, the vast majority of these secular students say, no, I wouldn't. And he said, okay, so why not, will you not, do you not take the money and the jewels because of? What, the way it will reflect on you, how it would shame you, how it would shame your family, or do you not take the money and jewels because of the implications for her, what it would do to her life, what it would do to those around her? And he said almost all of them say, well, because of what it would do for her. And, and this secular scholar says, well, that's you're, you're thinking out of a Christian mm-hmm. view of the world. That's where, that's where that thought comes from. Yeah, Ellen?
2: I was going to say, just it's very likely those people don't know that they would do it. Even though we come from a Christian viewpoint, yeah. the whole total depravity thing yeah. is true and they are just not self-aware enough to know right. that yes they would go for those tools <laughs> yeah. and, and, right. and, and, and so would all of us.
0: Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, it, and yet I think his, his point is, is also valid too that, our, that we would even have an initial impulse that that would be a question is because of the history that we have in the world. So you might check out a couple of those books that I mentioned that might be helpful there. Okay, these are great questions, very helpful. Uh, Over lunch, maybe we can pursue some more of these kind of things. All right, let's turn then to the great center section of the book. Um, Again, because our time is so limited this week, uh, we're only going to be able to focus on the Christological parts of Hebrews. And so let's take a look at... uh, this passage, 4.14-16, 4, is so important in the structure of the book. Uh, it's really kind of an encapsulation of the message of Hebrews in one place. Since we have a great high priest, we need to hang in there. It's kind of the heart of what the author is trying to do here. Um, and he's going to state it here, and then he's going to come around, and he's going to repeat the same ideas at the end of his Christological Uh, great center section of the book. Since we have a great priest, let's hold fast and let's draw near. He's going to say that again in chapter 10, verses 19 and following. Uh, But take a look at, at this passage. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest incapable of sympathizing with our weaknesses. There it is. Sympathizing with our weaknesses. But one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us confidently approach the throne of grace to receive mercy and find grace whenever we need help. All right, the purpose and process. purpose of this passage is, this is a crossroads of the book. It's uh, what I call an overlapping transition. It's kind of summing up the exhortation that starts at 3.1. What happens in 1 through 4.13 is the author gives different kinds of exhortation. And uh, we're not going to take time to go into those, but then when he comes back to his Christology here, beginning with 4.14 through 16, he uh, is kind of overlapping, wrapping up the exhortation. So he's going to give them uh, exhortation. Hold fast, draw near, that's exhortation. But then he's also anticipating his whole section on the high priesthood of Jesus in the center section of the book. So this is the conclusion of the exhortation material beginning at 3.1. And then it is leading into the next section. So we kind of wrapped up our Christology here. He goes into exhortation here by using the wilderness wanderers as a negative example, giving the promise of rest. And then he's going to come back to our passage 4.14 through 16 to launch into the center section. Um, so it's, it's the conclusion of that exhortation material, but it's also the introduction of this great center section that's gonna come around and wrap up in the same way here with this, um, with this same idea of Christ as our high priest, that gives us a foundation in life for hanging on and for drawing near to God. Okay, does that make a little bit of sense? Okay. So this uh, framing of the book is what I referred to earlier as an inclusio. It's um, what you could call a bracket structure, where you have something stated in one place that then is stated again later on to kind of wrap that section up. Um, It's a a way of kind of framing what the author is doing. All right. Okay. So let's let's talk about these three main points um, that you have here in this part of the passage. Um, He says, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Um, In Jewish theology, Jewish thought, one of the the ideas is that the very universe, the heavens themselves, are constructed like a great temple. And so the imagery that he's talking here of Jesus passing through the heavens is kind of the first hint of the author thinking of Jesus as the high priest actually going into the heavenly presence of God in the heavenly holy of holies. So the idea of passing through, notice that in Hebrews you have a lot of movement into the presence of God. Later on he's going to talk about the priest who come through that outer room into the inner room in the tabernacle. I'll say more about that in a bit. But here is the first hint of it. Uh, Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, then let's hold fast, okay? So um, so it's, it's Jesus going into the very presence of God the Father for us as our high priest, going into that heavenly presence of the Father. Does that make sense? Body with me on that? So that's going to be the foundation. We're going to unpack that as we work our way through the passages on high priesthood in the center section of the book. I will tell you this. This is kind of a cool element of the book that you can kind of just make a brief note on, and we'll see it as we go along. Here, notice that Jesus goes into the presence of, of God. Uh, we're not even mentioned in that part of the passage yet. It's just Jesus going into the presence of God. At the end of chapter 6, right before he goes into his stuff on Melchizedek and the appointment of the son, as high priest like Melchizedek, uh, right before he gets into the meat of his high priestly stuff, Right at the end of chapter 6, he says, Jesus has gone in before us, behind the curtain. It's like we're standing right outside the curtain at the end of chapter 6, and Jesus has gone in before us, behind the curtain, right into the presence of God for us. When he gets to the end of his high priestly stuff, when we get to chapter 10, verses 19 and following, he says, Therefore, we have confidence to enter in behind the veil into the presence of God. So he's kind of taking a step by step, and he's going to move from Jesus being the one who passes in to the one who leads us in as our high priest when he gets all of this kind of uh, dealt with in the great center section of the book. All right. So um, let us hold fast the confession. This, this idea of holding fast um, what is he talking about here? Well, he—he he is uh, this word could be used literally of um, grabbing hold of something. So, like when Peter and John went up to the temple and the person came and grabbed hold of them and you know begged for uh, for, for mercy um, as he heard the gospel, grabbed hold of them. It could, it could mean that, just grabbing hold of something. But here, what he's talking about is hanging on, holding fast to the confession. Um, And what he means by that, I think, is this idea of standing with the people of God as the church, standing together in a confession that, yes, Jesus Christ really is Lord of the universe. Yes, God has put stuff in motion in this world that we believe is true. We believe in the salvation that has been brought to us in Christ. Uh, So the idea of hanging on could be used of hanging on to certain teachings, that kind of idea. And here I think it also has the implications of holding on, even in a public sense, holding on in a public sense where you are saying, yes, I am a follower of Jesus. And you're doing that kind of locking arms with other believers. You're holding on to that confession that I believe this is who Jesus is. It's a very public kind of thing, not just something that is private. It's striking, we were talking about... um, the Joshua Harris situation that I mentioned yesterday at the break, you have somebody like that who makes it a very public thing that I'm letting go. I'm turning my back on all of this. And this would be the inversion of that. This would be the kind of continued public stance, if you will, even if it's just interpersonally with the people around you, where you you are saying, no, let's hold fast. Let's hang on together We didn't see this, but back in chapter 3, verses 12 and following, he actually says the way that we do that together as the church is by encouraging one another day after day as long as it's called today. Mm -hmm. Uh, We do that in community. That's why community is so important, is that we hold fast the confession together as we are, are living in community with one another and having dialogue and being honest about our struggles and our fears. But we do that interfacing with Jesus himself. He is a sympathetic high priest. He has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Now, it doesn't mean that Jesus was ever tempted to throw a computer out the window. Right? But what it means in all the ways that you and I are tempted to frustration with the way things work, uh, sexual sin, uh, arrogance and pride, all the kinds of temptations that we face... Christ faced those and yet did not sin. This is a very common teaching throughout the New Testament that Jesus turned away from sin um, and was sinless and therefore was perfect as our high priest in his sacrifice. So he's tempted and and therefore it gives us a basis for hanging on with him when we're struggling uh, in various kinds of situations. All right, and then the, the third point here is draw near to the throne of grace to find timely help. This is actually priestly language. <laughs> Jewish world in general, uh, this idea of drawing near can be used of prayer, of coming to God in prayer. But it's specifically language that you use, for instance, in Leviticus 9 to speak about when the high priests were appointed, they were uh, to draw near to God, come to the, to the entrance of the tabernacle to draw near for their appointment. So this is, again, this is foreshadowing that not only is Jesus the great high priest, but you and I are being drawn into relationship in which we, in essence, function as priests as well. We are a part of a priesthood. Peter says it overtly. So we are drawn into the presence of God where we can also live and interface with God in his presence. Uh, so this idea of drawing near, we could think of it in terms of prayer, being able to step right into the presence of God, being able to do that. But it is also um, a dynamic where we are functioning as priests in the world as, if you will, intermediaries in reaching out to others uh, on behalf of, of God himself, right? So we have, um, have these ideas of, um, of drawing near to God and, and uh, entering into relationship with him. Does anybody have a question there before we move kind of a look at our last um, section here this morning from chapter five? Yeah, Madison? Um, that we may obtain mercy and find grace. So, um, can you say more about what he meant by mercy and grace? And given that these are Christians who have already kind of Kind of yeah. yeah, yeah. You're you're speaking about um, chapter the, the very end of uh, yes. verse 16 yes. there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in order that we may receive mercy and might find grace and t- un- for timely help is yeah. one way you could translate that. Yeah, for timely help. Yeah. yeah. So he's already said in 2:17-18 that he is a merciful and faithful high priest. Right. Mm-hmm. He's merciful and faithful high priest. So so grace, the idea of grace, again, there's a great book that that, uh, has recently come out from John Barclay called Paul and the Gift, in which he talks about the breadth of the concept of grace in the ancient world. And uh, grace really had all kinds of connotations. Um, And we think of it very, very narrowly, but grace just has to do with gift. It has to do with Things that are beautiful and wonderful, Uh, grace can have to do with, um, you know, all kinds of things. So I think what he's talking about here is we draw near to God. We find mercy and grace. We find the gifts of God. We find God is merciful in helping us in the midst of our challenges, the difficulties that we face, and that kind of thing. So he's... he's, um, you know, it's, it's bigger than just kind of grace for forgiveness of sins. We do find that there as a part of the big thing that God is doing as we draw near. But it is bigger, it's bigger than that. I mean, he wants to have that as a foundation stone of what the high priest accomplished in decisively dealing with sins. But it's, it's something that he's also pointing to here, uh, acknowledging their struggle that they're having in the midst of the difficulties and the suffering that they're facing, that kind of thing. He sympathizes with us in, in that kind of stuff that we're dealing with in life. So he's one of us. It's been very comforting to me to think about the fact that when I am um, in the midst of my disillusionment and difficulty and struggling, you know, we all uh, struggle emotionally at times. I think I was telling Madison yesterday that uh, over the past 10 or 15 years, I jokingly said, that I just went ahead and scheduled my midlife crisis for every June. <laughs> uh, and, and, you know, we, we have real things that we deal with in life. Uh, you, you come to endings in life, big transitions. When parents die, kids move out of the home. All these things can be very unsettling in life. And we do face difficulties because of the gospel at times. And um, so what he's saying is that Christ is right in there with us. And to me, that's wonderfully encouraging that Jesus is not just, you know, the divine figure way off somewhere, that he's actually lived in the nitty-gritty of, of life experience and knows, he understands what it's like to, to feel emotions and, you know, these different things that we experience. Um, as a human being, he experienced that. And um, I think that that's, that's the idea and the, the timeliness of the help is that he can come and, and deal with our situation in a timely fashion. And that's a wonderful hope. Yeah.
1: Well, I'm wondering if if kind of this loop is completed there that, that specifically written to a suffering church, which actually in God's providence is about to embark on more suffering yes. than they know. Yeah, right. That that the author um, has made, that here we see that, that Christ is a king who is greater than the angels. Condescended to us, who right. was taken on to be a priest, who has gone through the suffering, and then he completes this loop that leads him back to his kingship, right? That he's yeah. greater than Moses, that uh, that he enters into the throne room, yes, and that here he is with the children God has given him, who are led into the throne room, yeah. But that's specifically uh, a comfort in suffering, that while we see our suffering so closely. Our tragedy so closely that we need to have this al- awakened in us yes, this, a lively vision of heaven, a throne room. Mm-hmm. That through this suffering, He leads us, to a yeah. In,
0: in a sense, the throne of Christ becomes the <clears> throat> anchor throat> and, and kind of central point of reference for life. Mm-hmm. In that sense, mm-hmm. uh, you really see that in chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Remember the, the passage about running the race? Uh, Let us. Um, kind of run the race that has been marked out before us, keeping our eyes on Jesus who ran that race before us. He suffered, uh, actually what the language says is he, in a sense, he shamed the shame of the cross. What do you do when you shame somebody? You treat them as less than significant. So he treated the shame of the cross as if it was insignificant because of the glory that he was being exalted to. That, that was the reference point, gave the reference point for him. And, and he then, remember I said earlier, you have the kind of this double look. We see Jesus in his suffering, he identifies with us in our difficulty and our suffering, but we also see him in his exaltation. We see where this is ultimately going. I think of uh, Jim Elliott's words, you know, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. That's that is the perspective that we that we kind of live in. So you're absolutely right. He's going to bring us all the way back around to the exalted Christ as the reference point from which we can actually live life effectively. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I, I actually really am grateful for George Herbert's works yeah. as well. And, yeah. In uh, prayer number one, I love the image where he talks about that prayer is the uh, the spear that pierces Christ's side. Yeah. In a way to say that prayer is a way by which we pierce the very heart. Yeah. Would right. you say that Hebrews would support that claim? Would it have a similar vision of the audacity of prayer and the power of prayer? Yeah. Well, it, it certainly is directly created or uh, di- directly connected to this idea of priesthood, which at the heart of it has to do with the sacrifice of Christ Himself. I mean, I mean, this is this is the audacity of the Christian message: is that God Himself would take on suffering to win us out of it ultimately, and back into relationship with himself. Um, it, it's it's the, the very counterintuitive message of the gospel that nobody was expecting. Um, and so I, I think that that's absolutely right. Yes, that prayer in coming to God, this idea that we can come into the presence of God, at the heart of that is there was a price to be paid for that to happen. And so we, we can touch God in our sufferings because at the heart of what God has done involved his own suffering. And that's just kind of an astounding thought. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for that. Okay, one more, and then we'll uh, take a look at five, one through ten.
3: So how do you think this Jewish audience is receiving this notion that they can enter into the Holy of Holies growing up with the mindset
1: for the high priest once yeah. a year yeah.
3: to present
1: our sins and I mean just thinking about
3: the
0: fact that there was a rope tied in
4: case <laughs> that, um, yeah. we had to
2: pull the high priest out because he was stuck dead.
0: Yeah. it. Yeah. It would have been um, cult, just culturally for them it just would have been so radically astounding I think uh, this kind of idea and yet you have to remember too that that in the first century Mo, many of the Jews, perhaps most, saw the temple as a corrupt institution
3: mm-hmm.
0: as well. It was, it was very compromised politically. And so a, a lot of Jewish thoughts about what God was going to do in the world really revolved around, so what's he going to do in relation to the temple? Because there were a lot of Jews that felt like it needed to be reconstituted. There was actually belief that when Messiah came, Messiah would reconstitute the temple, would set it up in a fresh way. And, of course, that's what Jesus ends up doing, but not in a way anyone thought. So uh, I think it was a, was a very radical idea. All right, let's talk then about this, this uh, idea of high priesthood that we uh, begin getting into here. Um, and take a look at this last section in our final uh, 20 minutes or so. Let's, let's at least get an overview of what's going on here. Um, you have, first of all, this, this, these first verses that are kind of a summary of the principles of high priesthood, and I've already alluded to this. And then they're gonna be wrapped up at the end of chapter seven. This whole movement, if you look on your, your structure of the book, this whole movement is on the appointment of Jesus as a high priest. Beginning in 5.1, going all the way to 7.28, he's going to kind of push a pause button in the middle of that and have another exhortation section, which includes uh, that difficult passage in chapter 6. But, but basically, he's starting something here that's going to take us all the way through chapter 7, focusing on the appointment of Jesus as a superior high priest. So notice what he says. For every high priest taken from among men is appointed In service to God for the people to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins, he's able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray since he is also subject to weakness. Because of this, he must make a sin offering for himself as well as for the people. Now here he's talking about just high priesthood in general, just high priesthood of of the old covenant era, all right? So he's saying this is how priests worked. They were there to offer sacrifices for others They were one of the people. They could sympathize with people and their weaknesses. In fact, if you go back and you look at the sacrifices for appointment in Leviticus 9 and the Day of Atonement sacrifice in Leviticus uh, 16, those sacrifices involved the high priest offering sacrifices for himself and his family first and then also offering sacrifices for the people. They had for both because a normal high priest was sinful right, and had weaknesses. Now, he's going to come around and he's going to wrap this up when he gets all the way through the section on appointment by saying this, For it is indeed fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need to do every day what those priests do, to offer sacrifices first for their own sins and then for the sins of the people, since he did this in offering himself once for all. He's speaking there about the sins of the people. For the law appoints as high priest men subject to weakness, but the word of the solemn affirmation or the oath that came after the law appoints a son made perfect forever. You see how he kind of plays off of the ideas here of high priest in general? And he's going to, by the time he gets to the end of this whole section on appointment, he's going to say Jesus is a different kind of high priest. So you have this uh, idea of appointment. So this whole section... Here, this big movement that goes from five one through seven twenty eight is on the appointment of the son as a superior priest. He's going to do an introduction in the passage that we're looking at now in five one through ten, an introduction on Jesus's appointment. He's then going to talk about the superiority of Melchizedek in seven one through ten to the Levitical priesthood, and then he's going to talk about the superiority of Jesus as a Melchizedekan priest. You see the logical steps there. So he's going to do an introduction, he's going to talk about the superiority of Melchizedek, and then he's going to talk about Jesus as superior, and he's basing that on Psalm 110.4. We've been looking at Psalm 110.1, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand, but then he's going to turn to Psalm 110.4, and he's going to talk about Melchizedek. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. The Lord has sworn he will not change his mind. Okay. So the way that the book kind of develops the Christology here is it's going to give an intro, and he's going to actually introduce someone to four here, and then he's going kind to of take us through the next couple of sections that we'll deal with tomorrow, all right? So let's, uh, let's talk just a minute about chapter 5, verses 1 through 10. Um, again, this is to introduce a section on the, the appointment of the high priest. He's going to focus on general pr- principles of high priesthood, and then he's going to introduce Psalm 1104, which is God's oath that made Jesus a priest. Um, and so we're going to kind of take a look at that very, very briefly, and uh, especially how he gives some reflections on Christ's suffering. The other thing that's interesting about this whole uh, section here in 5, 1 through 10 is it's lined out Chiastically. Uh, this kind of chiastic approach in the ancient world was kind of an A, B, C, D, D, C, B, A pattern. And remember, I said yesterday that when you when you read a text like Hebrews or you listened to a sermon or a message, uh, you didn't even have spaces between the words. You didn't have headings, you didn't have anything that marked out the steps. It, you just had run-on letters all across the page. And so what they're doing is they're giving different kinds of oral markers that help you track with what the author is doing. And what the author does here, notice that he starts with the old office of the high priest in verse 1, the sacrifice offered by the high priest, the weakness of the high priest, and the appointment of the high priest in verse 4. He's going to say that you know the way that these Levitical priests were appointed was by their lineage. Uh, you didn't, didn't sign up for high priesthood. You didn't go down to the high priest office and sign up. You you were appointed by God as a high priest. Uh, But then he's going to talk about the appointment of Christ as the new priest, the suffering of the new priest, the sacrificial provision of the new priest, and then the new office of high priest there in verse 10. So he's going to kind of move from these general ideas about high priesthood to the high priesthood of Christ himself. All right, Uh, for every high priest is taken from among men and appointed in service to God. Uh, So let's talk through some of the principles that we find in these first verses of the passage. The high priest has solidarity with the people because he is appointed from among the people. So he's taken from among people and appointed on behalf of God. Secondly, the high priest represents the people by joining other priests and offering sacrifices. So one of the roles of high priesthood is mediatory. The high priest is representing the people coming to God, offering sacrifices to facilitate their relationship with God. Okay? So that's a second point. The high priest represents people by joining the other priests and offering sacrifices and then also the Day of Atonement sacrifice. A third point is at ordination, the high priest offered a sacrifice for himself, before offering sacrifice for the people. Uh, So the Old Testament high priests were weak. They therefore could sympathize and deal gently with people. But it also meant that in their context, they had to have sacrifices made for themselves. And then one becomes a high priest by appointment. God set up the way that high priests would get appointed. In the Old Covenant, the high priests were appointed by lineage was who your father and mother were that determined uh, your priesthood. That's the way you got to be a high priest. Now, he's going to now change to a focus on Christ. So he says, in the same way, the Messiah did not exalt himself to become a high priest, but the one who said to him, you are my son, today I have become your father. You remember that was quoted way back at the beginning of chapter 1. The same one who said that also said, in another passage, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Now, he's pulling these two passages together because of that common language of you are. Remember we said the rabbis would do that when you had common language just verbal analogy? He pulls them together, and he uses that to launch into a discussion of Psalm 110.4, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek what we're going to see tomorrow is that this is what he's going to pick up on, and be, this is going to be the focus of chapter 7. Um, he's actually going to, in chapter 7, deal with Genesis 14, which is the only other passage in the Bible that deals with Melchizedek. He's going to talk about that first, and then he's going to talk about Psalm 110-4 for the balance of the chapter, and talk about the appointment of Jesus as a high priest on that basis. Uh, now, the other part of it, though, that um, I want to talk about just in the last few minutes is this last very interesting uh, bit here where he talks about the suffering of Jesus. And look at verse 7 in your Bibles, if you will, and following. He says, In the days of his flesh, um, he offered up what? what, did, what did, how did Jesus respond in the days of his flesh? What does your translation say? Okay, prayers and supplications to the one who was able to save him out of death. Now, what this immediately brings to mind is what in the gospel stories? Gethsemane. The, the Gethsemane experience, uh, it brings that to mind, and what else? Okay, the Garden of Gethsemane, yes. And what about the Garden of Gethsemane? What does this bring to mind? How did Jesus respond? What?
1: Oh, his passion and suffering.
0: Yeah, his passion and suffering in the garden. Very, very intense. He accepted the cup of wrath. He accepted the cup of wrath. Did you accept the cup of wrath, yes. Forgive them, they're not what they do. Right. Yeah, so he is actually uh, uh, sympathetic, if you will, with the disciples who fall asleep in the midst of what's going on. But he cries out to the Father Father, let this cup pass, if that is possible. But what you notice when you go back to the Gospels is you don't have the exact representation of what we see here, loud cries and with tears and this kind of thing. Uh, you don't really have that described in those uh, kind of Garden of Gethsemane passages. So one of the questions is where does this come from? Where does this language come from? It's, it's actually tapping into The depth of the suffering of Christ in the midst of what was going on, uh, where does this come from? Well, where it actually comes from is the psalms. These are allusions to the psalms of the righteous sufferer. So psalms like Psalm 116 and other uh, passages like that where the author is um, picking up on some of the language of these psalms. So I mentioned Psalm 22 earlier. Listen to Psalm, what Psalm 22:12 says. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer by night, and I am not silent. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Revere him, all you descendants of Israel. For he has not despised or disdained the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but listened to his cry for help. And there are other places where the righteous sufferer in the Psalms talks about his tears that are poured out in the midst of his righteous suffering. So I think what Hebrews is doing here is actually picking up on the language of the Psalms to describe the experience of Jesus in Gethsemane, of him crying out to God, but also the the idea of this this intense suffering that is taking place. So why is he doing that here? Why is he sharing that here? I think the reason is because of the experience of these people who are suffering on behalf of Christ as believers. I think what he's doing is he is giving them a a really a beautiful, powerful picture of the intensity of the suffering of Christ to say that, hey, in the suffering you're starting to experience in following Christ, he knows what you're going through. He knows the experience of suffering at its deepest levels, and therefore you need to track with him uh, as you suffer for him, because he he knows what it's like. He suffered as a righteous person, just as some of you are suffering as a righteous person think in the commentary I said something to the effect that we want this kind of glorious relationship with God. We want to walk in the Garden of Eden, if you will, without ever going through the Garden of Gethsemane. But the reality of the Christian life is that suffering is a part of the Christian life, according to the New Testament. It's a normal aspect of the Christian faith. It's normal. Uh, the luxury that you and I have had because of our moment in history. Our moment and our cultural development and that kind of thing is unusual in the history of the world, and uh, a lot of lot of our brothers and sisters around the world even now are suffering greatly in the cause of Christ. They they are having like a challenging, really a challenging time of it. So what the author is doing is he is he is uh, getting us to let go of our own control, to come to a place where we find that in the midst of our suffering, that Christ is there with us. And what's the key? The key is, he says, uh, we, he learned uh, obedience from the things that he suffered. What does that mean, that Christ learned obedience? It doesn't mean that he was disobedient and then he became obedient. He, the author has just said that he, he was without sin. But what he means is that he went through an experience of life, of learning what it meant in the midst of the most intense suffering to say, yes, Father, yes, I, I'm still bowed before you, and I embrace, I embrace this path that you have put me on. Um, and so learning obedience and then being obedient to Christ means that in the intensity of our suffering, when everything in this world is screaming out that God is not in control and what we're experiencing is unjust, of us clinging <coughs> to him and saying, and yet I will, I will follow you. Yet I will Say yes to you and the things that you've called me to in this life. That's the obedience that Christ is challenging us to and calling us to even in the midst of the suffering that we face. Okay. All right. Um, We're basically out of time. Um, Let me close us with prayer. And then Madison, I guess you or Matt, somebody's going to kind of give us a word on what we need to do uh, in terms of lunch. But thank you so much for your attention thus far uh, in our time together it's it's been wonderful to just hear from you and get feedback from you and and so we'll continue kind of our question answer time I think some at lunch and um, we'll look forward to having that time together as well so let's have a word of prayer together father we thank you for your word we thank you that it is real it is uh, realistic about uh, the things that we experience in life and lord I thank you for this time to open ourselves up to it Uh, Lord, I pray that in in kind of moving quickly through these different parts of the book, that you will help the truths that we each individually need, help those to sink deeply into our hearts. Lord, help us to embrace them. And I pray that you would shape us us by those truths. I pray that as we go to have fellowship around the table now that uh, we'll just have a good time together. Thank you for the joy of good food. Thank you for the joy of being together. Um, We pray, oh God, that you would work in us this day. In Christ's name there. Yeah.